All right. If you weren't here the first hour, I'm sorry. I was told that I can't review with you anymore. Okay, no, I'm joking. All right. We will continue our discussion on law and gospel. The goal today, if you, if you saw the title for the first hour, it actually said Jude because that's what we were going to do. And Sarah Danzler's like, no, you're going to do law and gospel. And so that is why we did that. So we're now in continuing that discussion for this hour. And we'll, what we, we are currently looking at the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. So if you have a copy of that, pull that out. We discussed it on Wednesday, um, this week, uh, remember I said I was going to be continuing to add content. Uh, we uh, finished a review of another sermon on law and gospel preached at a conference. If anybody need, Does anybody need a copy, a physical copy of the London Baptist Confession? Anybody? Anyone? Okay, I mean, if you need one for here for now. Okay. Um, so we did that. We also started a, a review on a podcast dealing with 1 John which we have already done a long uh, series on that because everyone runs to 1 John when you get into this distinction between law and gospel and try to use 1 John in a, a, a certain way. So all of that is online. All of that is available. So uh, we'll, And I will be continuing to add. We'll, we're going to be reviewing another sermon on law and gospel probably maybe this afternoon or tomorrow. And uh, that will deal with lordship uh, salvation and its connection to law and gospel and the destruction of the distinction between the two. So, all of that will be on the apps and everywhere. But this morning, before we, we're going to return back to the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. If you weren't here Wednesday, just remember, London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689 has two chapters on law and gospel. Everything pretty much stays that way until you get to about the 1800s through Baptist confessions, different Baptist confessions. Proper distinction between law and gospel. You get to the 1800s, basically you get a split between the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists. Northern Baptists kind of move away from a law, law and gospel. The Southern Baptists maintain some connection to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And then you get to the 1900s and the Southern Baptists basically just, boom, obliterated it and threw it out. And then that gets us to where we are today, where most evangelical and the Protestant world has abandoned a proper distinction between law and gospel. So what I'm going to do for this hour, I, I want to jump right back into the London Baptist Confession of Faith, because uh, I think it's just an important kind of historical interlude before we get through our 25 theses. But I want you to write down the word pietism. P-I-E-T-I-S-M, pietism. Pietism. You, we need to understand this, the, the significance of this movement within the Christian world. All right? Does anybody know where pietism started or when it started, the concept of pietism? Anybody know? You get $100 if you can tell me. I'm joking. Okay. What century? What century? 17th century, very good. All right, 17th and 18th century, all right? Which, which denomination is responsible for it? The Lutheran Church. Isn't that interesting? Why is that interesting in, in our discussion? The Lutherans are kind of known for their proper distinction between law and gospel, but pietism emerged in it. Now, this, okay, everybody got their thinking caps on? This is very important this morning. All right, everybody ready? This is very, 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 very important, okay? Listen, listen to me. Throughout church history, throughout church history, 
going all the way back to the seven ecumenical councils. It doesn't matter wherever you go in church history. There's, there is one constant reality that happens over and over and over again, right? And there's a number of realities, but they're all connected. You ready? Reality number one, error will emerge and show up within Christianity. Right? It'll emerge within. We always worry about the problems from without. The problems usually emerge from within Christianity, right? It's going to be inside. That's where error, that's where false teachers emerge. They emerge from within Christianity. Whatever the problems, whatever the failures, they emerge from within Christianity. Everybody got that? That's reality number one. Reality number two, there'll be some attempt to correct and fight against the error. All right, so far so good. These are basic basic realities. And there's reality number three. What do you think reality number three is? And an attempt to correct said error. Someone will go to an equal and opposite error to fight against the error. That happens constantly within Christianity. So what's reality number one? An error will emerge. Reality number two? A movement will rise to fight against it, to speak against it. And reality number three? An equal and opposite error to fight against it will emerge. This happens constantly within Christianity. Constantly within Christianity. We'll, we'll see something and we'll say it's a problem. And even if the problem is not within the church, we'll see something to fight against it and we'll run to an equal and opposite error. We, we, we see that now within Christianity in 2022. Christians looked out their window, saw how bad the world was. and was like, this is horrible. This is crazy. The culture is falling apart. The world's, the world's sliding down the, in, into the pit of hell. This is horrible. We got to fix this. 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 And instead of going to the scriptures for the solution, we turn to politics for the solution. We're going to make the church political and we're going to make people live like Christians by the law and we're going to take the country back for Jesus and we're going to make everyone a Christian. Well, that's a complete theological error. Christ didn't say go make people Christian by law. He says present what to them? The gospel to them. Politics is not the answer. It's an, it's an opposite re- response. For our example, we can talk about this. Everyone talks about the liberal forms of Christianity that is progressive or that is woke and it's so messed up and it's so bad. And so what has emerged to fight against the liberal, woke, progressive Christianity? A completely politically hijacked Christianity that is far the right. That's Republican. That's an equal and opposite error. The church always, this is just, it's gone throughout 2,000 years of church history. We always run to an error. We always run to an opposite, oh wait, people are bad. I know what we'll do. We'll pass laws and kill them for not being a Christian. That'll solve the problem. Okay, we, we always run to these crazy things. We, we, I mean, I could just go, we could go all day. I won't go through that. But one thing that emerged is pietism. What do you think pietism wanted to correct? What do you think I wanted to correct? Does anybody know what pietism is? Okay. Okay. Well, yes. I'll just, I'll just read a definition, okay? Pietism was a reform movement. Hear the word reform. That's important. Okay. A reform movement in the German Lutheran Church. And we know everything that comes from Germany is 
Okay, I'm joking. Okay, I'm joking. All right, all right. But when it comes to theology, <laughs> well, I got the Reformation comes from there. But man, there was a lot of higher criticism, all the issues that come out of there. But okay, but by the time it gets to America, we destroy. I mean, yeah. We could, we could have all kinds of jokes all the different ways, right? But it's a reform movement in the German Lutheran Church during the 17th and 18th centuries, which endeavored to renew the devotional idea in the Protestant religion. The most predominant trait of pietism is the emphasis on a practical, active piety rather than on doctrine. This involved, among other things, an emphasis on the performance of good works, scrutinizing one's daily life, the diligent study of Scripture, not the diligent study of Scripture to understand doctrine, theology. No, 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 no. The diligent study of Scripture to find the rules about how one should live their life. You need to pray more. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. All right. So studying scriptures with reference to its moral teaching, the centrality of forming a personal and experiential relationship with God and dissociation from worldly practices such as dancing, non-religious reading, inevitably leading to separatism and the sense of exclusivity. So in other words, pietism creates this idea like we're too worldly. And so how are we going to fight it? We're going to run over here to pietism and we're going to focus on what? Action, 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 action. Or someone said it a minute ago. I think, Stephen, you said it. What's the focus going to be on? Law, 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 law. Because we got to be better. We got to do better. We got to do better. We got to try harder. We got to try, try harder. And then guess what kind of flows from pietism? Sometimes we were, some people refer to pietism as legalism, but I think that's not necessarily accurate. Well, 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 definitely a self-righteousness emerges from it, but here's the thing. Just follow my logic here, right? So we have a proper distinction between law and gospel. Some will say that proper distinction between law and gospel led a lot of people to live ungodly lives. Because sometimes people will, if they don't feel like they're under an obligation, they may do what they want. So then we're going to fight against it with pietism, right? So would someone say something? Well, yeah, they saw worldly Christianity, so then we go to pietism to try to fight against it, okay? Now, once you have pietism, now it's going to be rule, rule, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then how do you end up with legalism? How does that lead to legalism? Legalism and its correct understanding, not its incorrect understanding. What a lot of people call legalism is nothing more than pietism. How does it lead to legalism? Well, yeah, you're throwing the gospel out. And what are you going to say? If you don't don't do this, 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 and this, you are not saved. Which then, no matter how you want to play the game, creates a system that requires what? If you don't do these things, you're not saved. So therefore, I don't care how you word it, you're claiming that you have to do this to be saved, making salvation by works instead of by grace. Now, should they have been concerned about worldliness and ungodliness? Yes, but the focus should not have turned away. Um, they begin to obliterate uh, doctrine for pietism, right? And a lot of churches are that way. We're not going to get into all that theology and all that doctrine. What are we concerned with? 
It's going to be practical, godly living. Practical. That's why, how many sermons are preached today that I got to give you three practical points to be a better wife, to be a better husband, to be a better teenager, to be a better single, to be, to be a better marriage, better dating, better this, better this, better this, better this. It's all rules, 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 rules. And all those rules are supposed to somehow make people piety, have a, a form of spiritual piety there. But in many cases, it creates a, a desire to wrap yourself in a robe of self-righteousness to look godly because what ultimately flows from pietism is if you're not doing these things, you are not saved, which creates true legalism because that destroys the gospel. Does that make sense? Pietism is the dominant, became the dominant theological identity of American Protestantism. American Protestantism became far more known by pietism than it did theology, doctrine. It it, it destroyed American Christianity. And most of you grew up in churches that were dominated by pietism. I did. I mean, I've told the story. I mean, I became a Christian as a teenager, and the first thing I, I mean, I didn't learn doctrine. I learned, don't listen to rock and roll, don't do here, don't date this, don't date, don't, don't, don't. I I mean, I, I was given a list of rules. I wasn't given a list of doctrines. So I had to finally get out of the Baptist church. It was a a Lutheran church that didn't give me rules. They gave me theology books. I'm like, "Ah, okay. I didn't even know this stuff existed. Baptists are like, what's theology? Just don't drink, don't don't smoke, and don't go to the movies, and you're good to go. Okay. So um, it was theology, and then you start realizing all of these movements. So Pietism is not. Please note. It's not that the desire to live godly is bad. It's when the movement basically leads to a legalistic idea and destroys law and gospel. All right, now, back to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. That's a free history lesson, all right? All right. And we're, this is going to go, this hour is getting ready to go so bad. Okay. Oh, man, I already know what's coming. All right, we're we're in paragraph six. I do not have time to review paragraph one, two, three, four, and five. All of that is online, all right? It's all there. I've already uploaded it to every app. It's all there, okay? So, we're in paragraph six, chapter 19. Everything's going to go good for just a few minutes, and then it's going to go really, really bad, okay? And we're going to have major disagreements, but that's okay. Just remember you're wrong, okay? No. I'm I'm joking, I'm joking. All right, here we go. Paragraph six. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Everyone in the first hour, we understand this, right? How are we not under a law of covenant of works to be justified or condemned? Well, think of it this way. If I tell someone that if they don't do this and they don't do this and they don't do that, then I'm telling them they're under a covenant of works, right? Because I'm saying you have to do this in order to be saved. And some people say, no, no, no. I'm saying that they will do it to be saved. But you're telling me if I will do it to be saved that I have to do it in order to be saved. No matter how you play the game, you're still making works required. Right? We're not. Why are we not under that? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. We're in Christ Jesus. So you, the law cannot be used to condemn me or to justify me. My justification comes from whom? Christ and his works. So far so good? Yet, it is very useful to them. The law is still useful to us. Meaning that the London Baptist Confession of Faith was not promoting antinomianism. 
right? The law is still useful. And it's useful for what reasons? Number one, as a rule of life that informs them the will of God. So it tells us God's will. God's will is for us to live godly. God's will is for us to live holy. Number two, our duty. It's our duty. So it informs. It's our duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. So it gives us how we're supposed to live. But guess what? Anytime the law tells you how you're supposed to live, what is the end result? Well, just, yeah, the next part. It's going to expose the sinful corruptions of three areas. What are the three areas? Nature, our heart, and our lives. No, whenever you give the law, whenever you look to the law, it's going to expose the corruption in those three areas. The nature, the heart, the life. And as you examine yourself, or as we examine ourselves, in light of the law, we become con- further conviction of humiliation for and hatred for sin, and a clear view of the need of Christ. So think of it this way. No matter, even if we say the law is wonderful and great, it's all going to lead to, to it's going to reveal three things. What are the three things it's going to reveal? Nature, heart, and lives. And it's going to reveal the corruption in all three. Once we see that corruption, then it should lead to conviction of, we should be convicted by it, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. You see how those three things connect? Along with a clearer view of our need for Christ. So we should be convicted, humiliated, hate it, but we should see what? Our need for Christ even more. We should see the need for Christ even more. And what do we need Christ for? The perfection of his obedience. I need his obedience. Now, I know everyone here is an expert on this, but it is October, so we got to make sure we always remember the doctrine of justification. Everybody remember how this works, right? We're not Catholics, right? We are not Catholics, right? Okay, so my justification is by faith alone, right? I put my faith in Christ and what happens in this transaction, right? My sin is imputed to Christ. Christ suffered and died and was a propitiation, meaning he satisfied the wrath of God on my account. So all of my sin has been completely forgiven and paid for. All right, that's good, right? His righteousness, including his active and passive obedience, is imputed to my account. Imputed. Imputed is the key word. That declares me to be holy, while at the same time, I'm not holy. Right? I am not infused. I'm imputed. This is like historical Christianity 101 that modern Christians have completely lost connection with somehow. I don't know how, but they have. So I'm declared to be righteous even though I'm not. Now, once I'm declared to be righteous, God's law is still there, right? Now, I'm still a sinner. I still have a sinful nature. What three things do I still have in my life? A corrupt nature, a corrupt heart, and a corrupt life. That is absolutely true. Now, God's law, even after a Christian, I'm a Christian. Now, I'm saved Imputed righteousness, now I'm following Christ, right? Okay, boom. Now, here's the law. And the law is going to constantly reveal that corruption over and over and over and over and over. And the more I see that corruption, what should it lead to? Conviction, 
humiliation. Hopefully it will make me hate, hate it, but it will ultimately drive me right back to Christ and his perfect obedience. Because the law is going to say, do it, and I'm going to say, I can't, and I don't. And Christ will say, I did, and the more I know that he did, what should flow from that? Gratitude and love that he did for me so that I could be saved. That's the reality of the Christian life. I know the London Baptist Confession of Faith is about to completely deny that reality in just a minute, which is bizarre, but they're going to, even though they describe the reality, they're about to completely (laughs) go against it in just a minute, okay? And this is where all the debates in Christianity exist. But okay, everybody good so far? All right, does that make sense? And tr- does that not describe your Christian life? If I, get, if I sit here and preach the law to you today, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this. All of you should be going, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I can't, I can't. Now, in your Christian life, earlier on, probably you were like, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do this. Uh, you may be writing little notes. I'm going to put it on the refrigerator. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you're going, I'm going to try. Now, that's a law-based Christianity. You're going to try. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't try. I'm just saying that what you have to realize is all of your attempts are going to fall short. And you know how you, you know why you should know that? First, just start reading Genesis to, to uh, the book of Malachi. Just read the Old Testament. Did Israel have law? Just think of all the things Israel had. Did they, have, they had a revelation of God because God was dwelling in their midst. That's, I mean, there was no question that God didn't exist. I mean, they knew God existed, right? Did they see evidences of his power and, and uh, miracles? Yes, yeah, so they had clear revelation. There wasn't even an issue. Did they have law? Was the law confusing? No. They even had priests and prophets to do what? Explain it to them. They had, they had all of these benefits. And what is the entire Old Testament a story of? Failure, 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 failure. Now, Protestant Christianity comes along and says, but guess what? That's because they were in the Old Testament. But now that we're in the New Testament, we don't have to do any of that anymore. We can be obedient and we can fulfill the law. Well, what's 2,000 years of church history taught us? Failure, 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 failure. In fact, you don't, you don't even have to wait till you get that far into church history. Just start reading the New Testament. What are all the, what's happening in all the churches that Paul's writing to? Sin. I mean, I'm, put it this way. It's pretty bad when you go to the Lord's Supper and you walk away drunk. It's pretty bad that when you're in your church, someone is sleeping with his father's wife. That's all going on inside the church. You got fighting, arguing. You got you got racial division going on in the church. Okay, you got people suing each other. You're like, I'm not eating with them. That's a Jew. Oh, he's a Gentile. I'm not. You got racial division. You got fighting. You got bigotry. You got everything going on in the church. Did it get any better in church history? So the the. The Bible is a story of people who believe in God who live like sinners. Because what does belief in God not remove? The corruption in your heart or life. I wish it did. I wish it did. Does that excuse it? 
No. Are we still condemned by it? We are condemned in the sense that it's a sin, but our hope is in Christ. All right, so far so good? I know they're getting ready to go against everything I just said, and we're going to have to struggle with why they changed their minds so much here. Okay, but here we go. All right. Um, the law is also useful to regenerate, uh, to the regenerate, to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The law is hopefully there to help kind of restrain it a little bit, right? Right? And all law there to try to restrain unlawfulness, it's there to try to restrain it. So it's trying to hold it back. But even if it, what is, what is law, when law restrains sin, how does it restrain it? It usually restrains the external activity, not the internal desire. Yeah. So law typically leads to behavioral modification. Which from a Christian perspective is good, but what is it? It doesn't mean that I'm still not a sinner. Do you understand? You may not, there's a lot of things you may not be doing externally, but you still may be guilty of all of them internally. That's the hard part of Christianity that nobody ever likes to talk about. All right? All right. Uh, the punishment threatened by the law shows them that even their sins deserve what troubles they may expect in their life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. That means simply, sometimes when you do wrong, there's consequences that come with it. Yes? For everyone. Okay? You become an alcoholic, there's negative consequences to it. Yes? All right. Okay. Uh, the promise of the law, likewise, shows them God's approval of obedience and the blessings that may expect when they keep it. There is blessings that, from staying away from bad things, right? You don't steal. You don't have to, there's a blessing of never going to jail or have to worry about the cops finding you. Yes? There's a blessing for never being an alcoholic. There's a blessing for never being a drug addict. There are blessings that come from it. Um, even though the blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and encourages, uh, encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. That just means that we are under grace and this is just the natural working of doing good versus doing bad. There's natural consequences of good and natural consequences of bad. And we all know that, right? We all know that. Everyone should. You experience that your whole life. So many of the things that we've suffered, in many cases, because of our own actions and foolishness. Right. So, so far so good. Now, oh boy, here we go. This is where all the problems start. And the problem is, there's not a paragraph after it. Problem is, this is where it always ends up. And I, and I, I spent a lot of time on this problem this week and on the podcast. Um, and, oh, man. I struggle with this so much. Drives me, it drives me crazy. But it's just the reality of the Christian life. So I know when I say that, when everything I'm getting ready to say, you're going to be like, no, no, but, 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 but. All I ask you to do is before you argue, just be honest with yourself. All right? And, and, rem- and remember how this works in theology. This should work in every area of life. All right? So think of this theo- in theology. Okay? In theology, we constantly put forth hypotheses. Right? We constantly put forth kind of theses that are ideas. But whenever we come up with those ideas, what must we do? Take the idea to its logical conclusion. And sometimes when we take a theological concept to its logical conclusion, what do we find at the end of that conclusion? That it falls off the cliff. And that it turns, it messes itself up bad. All right? Let me give you an example. All right? There are some churches, right, 
within the charismatic world that teach that healing is guaranteed for the here and now because of what Jesus did on the cross. They'll quote Isaiah, by his stripes were healed, and they believe that healing is guaranteed right here, right now. It's not if it's God's will, it is God's will. He guaranteed Jesus paid for you to be physically healed. Right here, right now. Right? And if you're not, it's somehow your fault. I gotta blame someone. Okay, but it's, it's guaranteed. Now, I got no problem saying healing is guaranteed in heaven when I get a new body and there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. But in the present, mm, I'm going to have a hard time with this, right? You know why I'm going to have a hard time with this? I'm just going to start taking to its logical conclusion. Well, one, if healing is guaranteed, why does anyone ever die? Two, all the churches where they say healing is guaranteed, as someone who worked in the medical world for 22 years, they sure need lots of medical appointments. Because I can name churches in Abilene where they, on a Sunday night, saying, we're having a healing service and, and God healed a hundred people and it was amazing. And then Monday morning, they're calling, I need an appointment. I wanted to say, no, you got healed last night. Click. We don't have any appointments for people who have a guaranteed healing. But they still need medical appointments. And they're wearing glasses and they have high blood pressure and high cholesterol and they have cancer and they die. So immediately, you know, there's something wrong with that theology because just taking it to its logical conclusion, it begins to fall apart. It begins, and they still die and all the other issues. I mean, again, I, I worked with one of the people who went to one of those charismatic churches. She said she worked for me in the appointment line. And, I would, and I'm not always the nicest person. But so whenever she wanted to be sick, and I'm like, you're not getting time off from work, just heal yourself. And I'd be like, hey, I'm tired of answering the phone. You just answer the phone and heal everyone who calls and we'll be good to go. Just stand in the parking lot and heal everyone. It never works. Wherever the charismatic church is that claims healing is guaranteed, the graveyards continue to get new graves. Hospitals are still filled. Children are still dying with cancer. It's, there's, there's a problem to the claim. Right? And I, 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 I don't even feel bad for saying that because I've watched too many people be told that healing is guaranteed and watch them die. Again, I worked with a woman diagnosed with cancer. We knew it was terminal. We knew it was going to be the end. Here comes two guys walking into her office who claim to be apostles from a charismatic church in Abilene. God told us that you're going to be healed. And then they prayed over her right there in the office. In the name of Jesus, your cancer is gone. You've been healed. And she starts crying and she's happy and she's going to go home and tell her family. Six months later, she died. Guess where those charismatics were? Nowhere. They didn't show up at the funeral. They didn't go back and apologize to her children. They went and hid because they were liars. And I get very upset about that. And I don't feel bad about getting upset about that. Because that's evil. Do I wish healing was guaranteed? I wouldn't have a seizure disorder. Those of you suffering with medical issues wouldn't have those medical issues. And he said, well, my faith's not strong. If my faith is not strong enough to heal me, then by definition, my faith should not be strong enough to save me. Therefore, I shouldn't even be saved. That's, that's a theological hypothesis. Taken to its logical conclusion, it's evil, pure evil. Right? And if you don't believe me, just go work in the medical world and watch people suffer and die. Take the bodies down to the morgue. Fill out the death certificates. Talk to the families. Oh, your problem is you just didn't believe in Jesus. 
Yeah, you tell the woman who's, whose child is eight years old dying of cancer, hey, if your child would just believe in Jesus, he would be healed. That's evil stuff, right? So, that's, that's a hypothesis. There's another hypothesis that goes something like this. When we become Christians, oh boy, here we go. I'm going I'm to go ahead and turn off the mic now so the people listening online won't have anything to say. All right, here we go. All right, my email. What's your email, Sarah? Okay. All right, here we go. Because now this stuff makes Christians mad at me, and they're going to accuse me of stuff, but you need to hear what I'm saying, okay? And, and we have to deal with this. I don't want sp- to, trust me, I'd rather do something else today than this, but this is where we are in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. All right, here's a hypothesis. When you be, before you're saved, we are sinners by nature, we have a heart that is deceitful, de- 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 wicked and deceitful above all things. We are in bondage to sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We are sinners and we can't do anything but sin and we cannot say yes to God. That sounds good, right? And I believe in total depravity and I'm ag- I agree with much, uh, m- most of that. But here's what comes with it. But when you are saved, you are freed from the bondage of sin. You are freed from the power of sin. So now you have the ability to say yes to God and no to sin. That sounds good. If I preach that, people will say amen. I may, in some churches, I may even get this. Y'all, don't, y'all never applaud for me, but I, they would even applaud for me. That'd be great. Now, let's take that to its logical conclusion. If I can say no to sin and yes to God, that means what? Not only is it plausible, not only is it possible, it would be likely, which should be the existence of what? Sinless Christians. If I can say no to sin, hey guys, it's Sunday, beginning of a new week. What are you going to do this week? Come on, play along. Say no to sin. All right, say no to sin. Now, some of you won't even say no to sin. By the time you get home, you're going to be arguing in the car about what to have for lunch and getting upset and frustrated and irritated with each other. Right? Someone's going to cut you off in traffic and you're going to think something you shouldn't think. Right? Some of you are probably already saying things about me that you shouldn't even be thinking. Right? Okay? I wish we could say no to sin. I wish we could be free to sin. The reality is, though, that hypothesis falls apart. Because they've already admitted in the London Baptist Confession, faith, what still remains inside of me? A corrupt nature, corrupt heart, and a corrupt life. But look what they say in the last paragraph. You know it. Here we go. The uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ, number one, subdues, number two, enables the human will to do 
freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. Oh, man. I mean, look, what, what, for that to be true, what would also have to be true? Well, what? The, the old nature's got to go. The old nature has to go. Why would the old nature have to go? Because even if Bobby does some of the things externally today, he does the things externally that look good, if he has anything in his heart that's corrupt, any thought, any desire, anything, his outward action is not obedience because it's inwardly corrupted. So much of our outward obedience is still inwardly corrupted. Do you think Eli always does everything Mr. Goodlett tells him to do because he cheerfully wants to and desires to do it? Okay? Right? He, he can't even have a straight face. He knows he can't, right? Sometimes he has to do what Mr. Goodlett tells him to do because he, he has no choice. Right? Sometimes we do the right thing for the wrong reason. And, and as Christians, it's constantly corrupted. I wish this was true. Do you not, do you know, do, I wish, oh, I wish it was true. That I could just willfully and cheerfully do whatever the law requires. Now remember, what does the law require for those who are in the first hour? What does the law require? Personal? Total? Exact? Perpetual obedience. That's what it requires. So if I can now willfully and cheerfully do what the law requires, then you should willfully, willfully, you should be able to willfully and cheerfully obey God personally, Exact, perfectly, totally, perpetually. Now, we don't even, you don't even need to argue with me. Right? All you got to do is I need a camera, never turned off, show me your life for a month. Oh, and I also need to know what's going on inside your heart and mind. Yeah, see, someone's willing to admit no. Okay, no, I don't want that. I don't want you seeing what's going on in my mind. You know what that creates? That creates a self-righteousness. Well, i got to put on a robe of self-righteousness, grab my fig leaves, run around, so that I'm not exposed to everyone for what I am. Well, we all have to pretend as Christians to be good, godly, and righteous, and perfect, even though we're not. Thank you. That does seem to be a mingling. It's really frustrating that that, but everyone who teaches the proper distinction along gospel always ends with that. Everyone does it. It's been going on in church history forever. Now I would just say, look, this is not even a matter of, of debate. It's just a matter of you prove it. Like anyone who argues with me, just prove it. Like if you can live willfully and cheerfully obeying the law of God, then don't argue with me. And what's so weird is sometimes when people argue with me and they're arguing against me, they will demonstrate either a, a, a lack of love or, or they'll be rude or, or they'll, they'll, they'll show multiple sins and how they handle it. Well, if you're going to show sin and trying to argue that I'm wrong, you're literally just proved 
that I'm right. <laughs> how can you not see that? Isn't it amazing how... Cra- I'll give you an example. On uh, YouTube today, I get a comment, right? They sign it like will, uh, woefully humble. Like they're, they're, they're a humble person, right? <laughs> okay, first of all, you don't tell people you're humble. That's, that's problem number one. But then they tell me that I'm humble, but in the, in the comment, they proceed to tell me what I don't know that I don't know the true origins of Christianity. I don't know how they know what I know or don't know about the true origins of Christianity, considering they've never spoken to me and I don't know who they are. So that's number one. Number two, they tell me what I should and should not teach on my podcast. None of that sounds humble. So I wanted to respond and say, you know, maybe you should change your name to Woefully Arrogant because you seem to know. But I, 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 I stopped myself. See, now, externally, I looked good because I didn't respond. Internally, I was like, this guy's an idiot. Okay, that's not, that's not Christian, right? Externally, though, I look good because there's no comment under it. So look at me. See, whew, I'm self-righteous, right? Look at me. I'm godly. But inside, did it, did it matter that I didn't externally do it? Not from a, not from a God perspective. Obviously, there's a good thing not doing it because I don't hurt someone. I don't, you know, does that make sense? So there is positives from it. But I'm saying from before God, God's like, so what? You didn't say it. You thought it. You desired it. You, you envisioned saying it to the person. So did that, that doesn't make me any more godly. I wish it was the case. What's the reality of the Christian life? What's the reality of the Christian life? Man, we're, we're not even going to get to them. Okay. Well, no, the reality of the Christian life is that God's law remains intact and we remain continually guilty of it. And my only hope is what? Christ. So, if we say it this way, let me say it this way. These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the imputed righteousness of Christ enables me to stand before God as someone who has freely and cheerfully obeyed the will of God. That's the only hope. It's in Christ. Why can the Bible say in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation? Because in Christ, what have I done? Did, did Christ willfully keep it? Now you could even, the cheerful part even, I mean, he didn't sound so cheerful in the garden, did he? Right? So, so I don't even know if we should possibly go there, but I, but I understand the, the concept. But So the idea is this. He, ultimately, though, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Right? Okay? Demonstrating his submission to the Father. A perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Right? All right? So the, in Christ, that perfect obedience is mine. Any other way, I fall short of it. Look, I, I, everyone... All I will say this, Christians will, and I've heard a million sermons, and they all say the same thing, that now you, you are free, you now have the ability to say yes to God and no to sin. I've heard that preached a million times. It's been preached, it's been preached, it's been preached. Here's the problem, I've never seen anyone live that out in any meaningful way. 
So at some point, what do you have to do with your theological hypothesis? What do you do in science once you try your hypothesis and it fails? You start over, right? There may be something true to the, uh, the initial hypothesis, right? It doesn't mean you throw out everything. It just means you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't work. I wish it was true. But I got 2,000 years of church. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he makes three very important claims. Number one, the things I want to do, I don't do. Right? Things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And then he makes a very important claim at the end of Romans 7. Well, he says he's a wretched man, but he says with his mind, his mind, he serves the law of God. But with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. How is that humanly possible? Everyone forgets that part. Everyone just, Romans 7.25, everyone just obliterates that. Right? They're like, this is how they preach it. Paul, he struggled. The things he didn't want to do, he did. And the things he didn't want to do, he did. But he said, who's going to deliver me? And then he says, Christ Jesus is going to deliver me. And how did Christ deliver him? Because now he can stop doing the things he don't want to do. And he can start doing the things he wants to do. That's how it's preached. But Paul doesn't end the chapter saying that. He says, with his mind, he will serve the law of God. In other words, mind, desire, thoughts. He wants to. But he acknowledges still the flesh is still going to serve the law of flesh. And then how does he begin Romans chapter 8, the very next verse? Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where is his hope of not being condemned? Now, everyone takes the next phrase and then tries to say, what? But, 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 you're not condemned only if you walk the right way. That's how everyone takes the next phrase. Remember, we've talked about this in our study in Romans. Um, this is just an extension of that. And we'll, we'll go back and look at some of that in the future. But I just want you to see that everyone has to deal with this concept because everyone says this concept is the way it works. I wish it's the way it worked. I just know it doesn't. He said, but the scriptures tell, as Christians, you're supposed to do this and this and this and this and this. Look, if you, look, I would just challenge you to this. Take Matthew and go to Revelation and just have a notebook called Rules. Write down every law and every rule just in Matthew to Revelation. I'll give you, I'll give you three. Right? Yeah, everybody knows the three, right? I give the same three every time. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be ye holy as God is holy. Those are three. Those are simple are perfect. In Matthew, he says perfect. Uh, um, Peter says, be holy as God is holy, which is a quote from Leviticus. Okay. All right. Now those three. Now that's just three. Right? I could add a fourth, love your enemy, but we'll just go with those three. Now, according to this, you now have been able to willfully and cheerfully follow it. Those just three. Can anybody come back next Sunday and say that they willfully and cheerfully loved God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul, loved their neighbor as their self, and was holy as God was holy? Would that not then disprove this hypothesis? But what can I say? If Bobby said, hey, did you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? And were you as holy as God is holy? I could say, in Christ I did. Now, does that excuse the fact that I didn't? No, but that's my only hope. That's my only hope. All right, go to the next chapter. 
London Baptist, yes. All right, and your, yeah. What's the next chapter? The gospel. So, everything they said about the law, we're in complete agreement with. We just have a problem with paragraph 7, depending on how we understand that. In Christ, I am that. I am willfully and cheerfully obedient. In Christ, I, uh, I do keep it. But in practice, I know I don't. In fact, for it to happen in practice almost would require an infused righteousness, which is what we supposedly don't believe as Protestants. Remember, the whole Protestant Reformation is an, an argument between what kind of righteousness saves us, imputed or infused. Catholic Church says infused, we say imputed. That's the whole Protestant Reformation. Maybe if churches did less trunk or treat and yet fall festivals and studied Reformation theology, they would understand that. But, you know, we can't study theology on, you know, Reformation Day because we have to hand out candy and be like everyone else. Look, do all the candy you want, but shouldn't the church... The church should be focused on what? The, the doctrine. I mean, you don't need the church to give you candy and fun. Right? That's what always blew my mind as a teenager when I became a Christian. I didn't need the church to give me a pizza party and a lock-in. I did that. I got that, I got that down. I got, Pastor, I got it. I don't need you to give me fun. One, your fun is usually cheesy. And two, I got it. I got, I got fun down. What I need you to give me is this doctrine, theology, church history. That's what I need because I don't know that stuff. I know fun. I knew fun before I came to church. Right? I knew it after. I've never, guess what I always say? I've never had a church member call me and go, Pastor, it's Thursday night. I haven't had any fun. Can you tell me what to do? Could you provide me some entertainment? At first, I'd hang up on you. Okay. But I, why do you not need me for that? You figure that all out on your own. All right. Does that make sense? You got a, you got a million things to do. We don't have enough time in our life to figure out doctrine and theology. We don't even have enough time to figure out the proper distinction between law and gospel. Okay, all right? So, here we go. Chapter 20. Oh, man, no, we can't do it. We're at 12.11. I can't. Oh! Who created time? Okay. Okay, well, that we, that's a whole argument. Okay, all right. Remember at my uh, at Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska, we spent an entire semester arguing about time? The existence of time. Did, did time exist in eternity or is time a creation by man? Okay, all, right. yeah. all in our Genesis class. All we did was argue about time for an entire semester. It's it. That's all we argued about. Okay. The philosophy. Do I? I got an A, but I still don't know what I learned. Okay, right? But all right. I still don't know, the, but I hate time. That's the point. All right. Any questions about that? You have your opportunity to ask. No? Okay. Oh, not about time, but okay. <laughs> Bobby's going to quote Genesis. Okay. No, that, that, that's what started the whole argument. Okay. Right. Okay, go. Go ahead. And there's no dumb questions, only dumb answers. Okay, so we can go ahead and sin and just cover up and say, oh, we're covered in Christ. Okay. Do we make any choices? Okay. Well, let's say it this way You're going to sin. Whether you, want, you say, whether you say it that way or not, whether you say, well, I can just sin, you're going to sin. And obviously your only hope is Christ. Yeah. So that part's a fact. Now, what should your attitude be? That's right. 
Your attitude should be that I don't want to. It's a sin. And what does the confession say? We should be convicted by it, humiliated by it, and hate it. So we should have the right attitude. Are we always going to have the right attitude? No, we're not always going to have the right attitude. Remember Luther's famous line, do I love God? Sometimes I hate him. And everybody's like, oh! They're shocked. I love the honesty. So sometimes do we hate sin? No. Sometimes I love it very, 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 very much. Am I always humiliated by it? No. Do I always feel bad about it? No. I hope the more I look at the law of God, I will see that it's wrong and be convicted by it. But the reality is I'm going to continue to sin. So as much as we would like to say, we should stop sinning, we should stop sinning, we're not going to stop sinning unless you believe that you can. And if you believe you can, well, then, then all you have to do is just don't do it. And then, but yeah, yeah, but everyone's always worried about what attitude will this lead to. It may lead to a bad attitude because people, we, we abuse anything, right? You do something great, nice for Eli, right? Do something wonderful for him. And a tendency that he may start taking you for granted or demand more and have a bad attitude about it, it's possible. So does that mean you don't do anything nice for him? No, right? So I'm saying we, whatever truth, we, we're always guilty of abusing the truth. But abusing a truth doesn't mean we correct the abuse of the truth by creating an erroneous. Because what typically happens is, well, see, Christians are going to think they can just do whatever they want. So now we have to threaten them that if they do this, they're probably not saved. And that's how we try to fix it. But did that make anyone more godly? No, it's never. I mean, you're church Christ. You ever threatened to lose your salvation for everything? Did it make y'all more godly? No. Nope. Anybody know Catholics? Are they more godly because they believe in infused righteousness and believe that they are going to possibly commit a sin, no longer be in a state of grace, and uh, go, go to, not even get to purgatory, go to hell? No, they're not any more godly. Are Baptists any more godly? No. Are Lutherans any more godly? Assemblies of God any more godly? No, because all of our attempts to correct it, because where's the problem? The problem's inside of us. So all the threats of, hey, see, you're probably not saved. You're probably not saved because you did this, this, and this. It doesn't make people go, okay, I'll be better. Because they'll try to be better for so long and still realize that the corruption is inside. That doesn't eliminate the corruption. Right? Y'all went to a lordship church, right? Strong lordship. Was everyone there more godly and better and great and wonderful? No. I've seen people in quote-unquote easy believism churches. I've seen people in all, every kind of... You know what's true of every church? The people go are what? Sinners. And why are they sinners? They have a sin nature. Right. That's the problem. So the question is, I think maybe, I don't know if this is going to help, but I at least want us to consider this. What has a greater chance of impacting us internally to maybe lead to a greater godly life? You have two options. Give people more law or point people to the gospel. Some people want a law, it's called a law-based sanctification. Now, I did a long discussion this week on monergistic versus synergistic sanctification, which gets into a whole different concept. But if it's law-based, how, how does sanctification work in a law-based thing? Law-based is like, hey, 
Come on, guys, study your Bible. Hey, guys, how come you're not listening to the podcast? Hey, guys, read more. Hey, guys, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's how I was taught. That's how I, I preached early on in my Christian life. That's the way it was. Do this, do this, do this. And does it ever lead to everyone doing it? I, that's the one thing I begin to realize. No one's going to do anything. They're going to do what, exactly what they want to do. Everyone may pretend or dress themselves up. It doesn't fix anything. It just adds more demands, which leads to more frustration, more discouragement, and more disillusionment, maybe with everything. Amen? So I don't know if law-based sanctification really is, is of great benefit. What's a gospel-based sanctification look like? You point people to what Christ has done for them. It doesn't mean you don't tell them there's things they're supposed to do, but you keep pointing them to Christ. And that their hope and their... And their I think about it this way. If you think about it, remember there's three kinds of sanctification? Everybody know that? There's three kinds of sanctification? There's your positional, experiential or practical, and then your ultimate. Glorification, okay, that's, that's the end. We have no control over that. The initial one, that's all God. And salvation, he sets you apart to himself. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's that practical one. Well, what is going to motivate me to live it out? Well, law clearly doesn't seem to work. Israel failed with all the law. So there may be a more gospel-driven approach. But the bottom line is, is do you believe that you're now just... Sanctification should be the easiest thing in the world if every Christian now has the ability to say yes to God and no to sin. Sanctification shouldn't even be a process. Guess what? I can tell, even if I tell Bobby, well, no, for Bobby to have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God, Bobby would have to be missing what? A sinful nature. Because as long as he has a sinful nature, the sinful nature is always going to fight against his desire to say no, which will lead to what kind of reality? The things I want to do and the things I don't. You have to believe in the eradication of the old man. And it's never, when is it eradicated? Glorification. Don't I wish that was now? Amen. I do. Now, if you, if you believe that you have the ability to stop sinning, okay, that's great. I mean, don't, don't argue. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. And if you can, write a book about it. Just don't let anyone find out what's really going on inside of you or what's going on in private. Because your book may end up looking really bad when it contradicts everything that's true of you. And that's happened too many times in the Christian life, has it not? Sooner or later, our, the reality of who we are has a what? Shows its ugly self. Re- read Hebrews 11. All of those great men of faith were all great sinners. Right? Did some horrible things. What Abraham did to Hagar, that's some messed up stuff, right? Okay, and we can go on and on. David, some messed up stuff. Who else even shows up in Hebrews 11? Samson, for crying out loud. How in the world does he get there? By faith, these men are declared to be righteous when they demonstrated their sinfulness. That's the reality of the Christian life. And sometimes we've tried to convince the world that when we become Christian, we became better than them. In reality, we just became declared to be holy. 
but we're just as unholy because that sinful nature doesn't go away. All right, I'll have to stop there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. This is some deep and complicated theology. I, we, we didn't even come close, Lord, to even trying to find all the answers, but I hope that this will give everyone a desire and a motivation to continue to think and meditate on this. As we continue to work on the series here and on the podcast, I pray that everyone will think, meditate, and help us find the truth so we have a proper distinction between law and gospel and that we can rest in the finished work of your son. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,